If you take out that supernatural element, you're missing out a lot of what's this understanding of the Bible. And when we're reading the Bible, we want to understand it on its own terms. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Poetry holds a profound significance in human culture, transcending time and cultural boundaries. Its value lies not only in its artistic expression, but also in its ability to convey complex emotions, thoughts, and narratives. Throughout history, poetry has become intertwined with religious narrative, serving as a powerful medium to explore and express spiritual experiences. The importance of poetry can be traced back to its ability to encapsulate the human experience in a condensed and evocative form. Poetry distills emotions, capturing the essence of joy, sorrow, love, and contemplation within a few carefully chosen words. This succinct yet powerful communication enables individuals to connect with their own emotions and even the experiences of others thereby fostering empathy and understanding. Religious narratives, which often deal with profound and transcendent themes, find a natural ally in poetry. Many religious texts, such as the Psalms and the Bible, are inherently poetic. The rhythmic flow, metaphors, and symbolic language of poetry allow these sacred texts to convey spiritual truths and explore the mysteries of existence in a way that prose often cannot. In various religious traditions, poetry serves as a vehicle for worship, praise, hymns, chants, and devotional poetry elevate the spiritual experience, providing a medium through which believers can express their devotion and connect with the divine. The musicality inherent in poetry enhances worship experience, creating a rhythm that resonates with the human soul and reinforces the sacred nature of the moment. Beyond worship, poetry is employed in religious teachings to convey moral lessons, ethical principles, philosophical insights. Things like parables or allegories and didactic poems are common in many religious traditions. 
offering a nuanced and imaginative way to approach the imparting of wisdom. The use of metaphor, symbolism, and poetry enables individuals to grasp complex concepts by appealing to their emotions and imagination. Furthermore, poetry plays a crucial role in preserving and transmitting religious tradition across generations. Oral tradition often employ poetic forms to make stories memorable and easy to pass down through the ages. The rhythmic patterns and repetition in poetry aid in oral recitation, ensuring that sacred verses are retained accurately and faithfully over time. In the context of mysticism, poetry becomes a gateway to experiences and encounters with the divine. Within Sufism, mystical poets like Rumi, or within Christian mysticism, St. John of the Cross, use language in a way that transcends the ordinary and points towards the ineffable. Through their verses, these poets invite readers to embark on a spiritual journey, exploring the mysteries of existence and seeking union with the divine. Through the universality of poetic expression, individuals from diverse backgrounds can find common ground in their shared spiritual journey. Poetic language often transcends linguistic and cultural barriers, creating a space where people can connect on a deep and emotional, even spiritual level. In conclusion, the importance and value of poetry extend far beyond its aesthetic appeal and serves to become a vehicle for profound self-expression. It's a conduit for worship and praise, a tool for moral and spiritual education and a means of preserving and transmitting religious tradition. Its incorporation into religious narratives enrich the spiritual experience, providing a language that can articulate the ineffable and a medium through which believers can connect with the divine and each other across time and space. In aeons past, when the unknowable forces stirred in the abyssal realms, there burgeoned a symphony of cosmic disquiet. From the unfathomable void, a whisper, a small, soft voice emerged, heralding the genesis of luminance. In the tapestry of eternity, tendrils of brilliance unfurled, piercing the Stygian expanse that clung to the primal chaos. Yet as light danced upon the celestial stage, darkness clung tenaciously to the fringes. The yawning abyss, resentful and envious, sought to reclaim the luminous progeny. Thus, the temporal struggle unfolded, a dichotomy etched into the very sinews of reality. Today, we bring on an electrifying presence, weighing in with a wealth of knowledge and a powerhouse of expertise, a discerner of darkness, the voice of charisma, the dynamic intellect, a master's graduate from Redemption Seminary, the hostess of Genesis Marks the Spot podcast, Carrie Griffel. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. So we've been talking back and forth about some ideas. And, and one of the things that was striking me was the idea of Christianity being colored quite honestly by Milton's Paradise Lost. It's a profound poem. And because of its profundity, it basically poured into Christian theology. And the listeners probably are aware that Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, was designed to basically justify the ways of God to man. 
or to justify the ultimate being to human beings. And Christianity is colored by the fall of Satan, depicted within that poem, of which scholars have tried to squeeze out the idea in Isaiah that it's Lucifer falling when contextual speaking, it's directed at this Babylonian prince or ruler. Right. Yeah. Paradise Lost is a beautiful poem. And if you haven't read it, I really do suggest that you read it. And not only is the poem's beauty the thing that pulls people in, but when it was published, it was published with amazing artwork as well. So when you have that combination of the beautiful poetry, as well as the beautiful art that accompanies it, people are just going to eat that up. And when you have both of those things, it really impacts your imagination in a way that is very primal and very deep. And I, I don't want to say that we can't talk about a fall, but the question is, how do we talk about the fall? And what does it mean? Is the ways that we talk about the fall the same as the way that the Bible is actually presenting it to us? That's the important question. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So the idea of this Satan figure, I mean, we usually could see him portrayed in Disney movies quite frequently as like Scar and the Lion King, or my favorite Jafar and Aladdin, basically this scheming intellect that says, hey, right. I have this idea and it's way better than what you've got going on, God. So I want to do my own thing. And all of a sudden in Milton's Paradise Lost, he goes from basically being this gorgeous heavenly angel to being in the fiery pits of hell as a satyr-like creature almost immediately. Right. Well, yes. But I mean, there is a big history between what we have in the Bible and Milton's Paradise mm -hmm. Lost. There's a long history of how Milton got to that kind of imagery of Satan like that. And some of that is even really biblical imagery. But once we get into the actual narrative of what happened in the fall, in Paradise Lost, that really parallels a lot of what our, our average Christian goer might think about what the fall was. And the fall being this sense of going from a high place to a low place, right? In Paradise Lost, that's very visual. It's, it's very much that kind of dynamic of the heavens are up here and Satan falls not only to the earth, but underneath the earth. And that is kind of what we have going on in the Bible. But in Paradise Lost, we have the idea that this fall happens before the creation of man. So that's our first problem, because that's not what we see in the Bible at all. Mm -hmm. The second problem is that we marry the idea of the fall with the fall of man as well. And the idea that man also had that kind of going from the heavens to the earth kind of sense. And again, I don't want to say that's entirely wrong, but there's better ways of thinking about it. And there's more complete ways that we can think about this. Because when you're just looking at it as a fall, you're really kind of narrowing your picture of what the fall is. And when you read scripture, you're like, well, this is what I see. And you, you gloss over so much of what is actually there. And it's really easy to do that because the narrative in Genesis, it's very short. There's not really a whole lot of detail. You're just kind of plunged into the story. It happens, then you're plunged into another part of the story. And you, so you're missing a lot of detail, but the detail is there. It's just that you have to really look hard to find it. Right. Which would lead us back to the beginning. I mean, if we go all the way to the beginning of Genesis, you know, we read that 
you know, the beginning is God's creating the heavens and the earth, and then we get this list of things being made within a creational story, and we have its conclusion being man, and then chapter two, right, right around chapter two somewhere, it, it kind of begins a second uh, second creation story there. And so, you know, different scholars will say that this is the Yahwist and this is the, you know, this tradition and so on and so forth. But the important thing is we get a lot of our theology from time period popular fiction, right? So Paradise Lost would have been fiction because it's obviously not the biblical narrative, but it is a way that this guy's trying to poetically tell us about, you know, God's will for mankind, because that's the ultimate aim is that's the story. and. We also know that Genesis itself is written in a poetic form, but can we differentiate between the medieval poetry and this sing-song story poetry of Genesis and pull out the idea that mythology isn't the right word to use when we're discussing early biblical writings like Genesis? Right. Well, I mean, it depends on how you define the word mythology, but the way that we usually think of it, then true. Well, the the idea that Paradise Lost has is that there is this perfection that's going on in Eden. And mankind, with the help of Satan, because Satan fell before mankind, lost that perfection. And that's just, that's simply not what we see in the biblical story. Nothing is described as perfect. There, it's described as very good, which is maybe close to perfect. And we can say, well, you know, it's good enough, right? People should have stayed in that very good state. That's not the purpose of creation is just to maintain some status quo of very good. You know, the purpose of creation was far beyond that. And that's what we're getting with the coming of Christ is that perfection of creation. And so when we see that, you know, there's something that's even better than Eden and even beyond Eden, it's not a return to Mm -hmm. Eden that we want. We want something better than that. We want something beyond that. So the idea of a fall of being perfect and then becoming less perfect, not good. Mm-hmm. We, we don't just want to get to that Edenic ideal. We want to get beyond it. We want to get to what God actually wanted in creation. What were his purposes? And part of what we can do here is we can look at the fall of Genesis and the, the other falls that we can talk about here as well. And we can say, what, who was involved and what are the consequences? And guess what? Not all of the consequences are even bad. Some of the consequences of the fall are actually benefiting right. humans. And not in the sense that it, it fixes what just happened, but God is blessing us even in these things. So I, I think it's really this dynamic of looking at it in a more nuanced way rather than just checking the box and saying, okay, I understand that story. Let's yeah. move on. And if we think of the fall of Genesis 3, as many Christians do, as this foundational story for history and for why Christ came and for the church and our lives, then part of the problem of doing that is that we look in the Bible and we look at the massive section of our Bible called the Old Testament. It's not really talking about Satan and the fall. So we could ask ourselves why, when we're reading so much of these stories in the Bible, why don't their concerns line up with my concerns? Why aren't their primary worries about sin and the nature of sin and death and what happened with Satan or the serpent, I would really rather say about Genesis 3. 
Yeah, we spent a little bit of time in another episode of mine exploring these ideas that were hashed out during the Second Temple period with, you know, the encroachment basically of the Hellenistic theology and ideas that was pouring into Judaism. But not just that, there were also groups of people who were exploring these early Torah ideas. They were writing lengthy books. They were writing down things that were, you know, Book of Jubilees, a Book of Giants. There's all sorts of stuff that came out of the, the caves at Qumran and the cache that was found in Egypt itself. I found very curious is that the idea between the fall of man and Jesus redeeming man, basically conquering this death entered into the world idea. But if I read further in Genesis, there's other events that happen. It wasn't just a once and done. There's the fall in the Garden of Eden where man listens to a serpent and that serpent's restricted to crawling on the ground, which is what serpents do. And we find later that the world's going to be flooded because of another act of inequity. And Jude says pretty much euphemistically that it was a sexual sin of angels on men and not some idea of, I mean, it could have been rulers, it could have been the sons of Seth, but that's not how Jude seems to depict the story. And he's writing, you know, in the Second Temple period, time two, and they're all reading texts. All these guys, all the apostles, they read books. And that's what we're confronted with is the ideas that Genesis 1, 2, 3, fall of man, 4, 5, 6, the flood of the world, and then the Tower of Babel. There's like all these events. One of them alone doesn't seem sufficient enough to justify Jesus coming because he does more in his ministry than address right. the fall of man. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say it's not important. Right. That's not what we're saying here at all. But it's so much broader. And getting into that broader context really enriches the purpose of Jesus and how he, we can actually live into that as Christians as well. So when we are thinking about the reality of these things and why does it matter to understand it, well, what could matter more than understanding why Jesus came, understanding what his work did, and understanding how that impacts us today as mm -hmm. Christians? I can't think of anything more essential than that. Yeah, so these guys, I mean, all of the people that were following around with Jesus, they may have had different ideas of who the Messiah was, or what the Messiah was supposed to do. We understand that. You know, we understand that it's like, hey, we want you to come and right. conquer like David, but the dude's like Joseph. But really, was his enemy really with the flesh and blood of the Roman Empire? Or was it something eternal, an eternal conflict that was occurring between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm? Right. Yeah. And that's that's why we need to focus on what these are. I still use the word fall, even though I feel like the idea of boundary crossing between heaven and earth is a better way of thinking yeah. about it. But there's the consequences and there's the whole situation that's involved here. Uh, you know, people ask the question of why was Eve talking to the serpent? Didn't she know he was a bad guy? And she doesn't appear to know that he was mm -hmm. a bad guy. She's just talking to him like a normal exchange. And, you know, the Book of Jubilees and other things go into the idea that, oh, it's just a snake. We're just going to leave it at that. And the snakes and other animals just stopped talking when they got cast out of Eden. But of course, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests anything of the sort. And when you go into the actual ancient context of these kinds of passages, we realize that a snake or a serpent functioned as a throne guardian in ancient Near Eastern right. thought. 
yeah. imagery. And not just snakes, but other kinds of animals in different areas and different cultures would be the kind of, they would capsulate what people would think of as divinity. Because, and you have to do that because when you're interacting from our realm and talking about the divine realm, you have to use mm-hmm. our imagery. You have to use metaphor. You have to use things that we are understanding. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us that she's talking to something that seems real to us in a different context. But in the ancient context, they would have had all of these imageries, especially the way the serpent is described in Genesis and the way he's described in later places in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 28, as well as Isaiah 14, there's suggestion that those two passages are talking about the serpent. And the way that they're talking about the serpent of the garden, it's very divine type imagery, shining jewels and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And the other thing is like people ask, well, why is it just a snake? It's described as a snake in Genesis Mm -hmm. 3, right? The beast of the field. Well, my thinking, my belief there is that it's described that way explicitly because Adam and Eve were given dominion over creatures of the earth. So if it was described as some sort of angelic creature instead of a snake or serpent, then we'd be left wondering, oh, well, you know, maybe that angel had something on her and she should have listened to him. But being described as a serpent, that is telegraphing the reader that, no, she had dominion over him. She should have put him in, a, in his place, and she didn't. She failed in her dominion over the serpent. And so I think that is a lot of the reason he's described as that. So you have the idea that he's described as an earthly creature because humans are supposed to have dominion over earthly creatures. But at the same time, there would be that extra layer of idea that the ancient person would have seen him as not just that. Right. And absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, the author of the book of Hebrews pretty much says that uh, right around chapter two, because he's like, it wasn't the angels that God created the earth for. It wasn't, that wasn't the point. And he's like, uh, the author of Hebrews also goes on to say that, you know, man was made a little bit lower than the angels for a period of time. Obviously, while we're here, in these flesh suits, sort of speaking, as we are human persons, right? And then everything was given to us, sub- you know, every everything was subject to be under our feet, according to the author of Hebrews. And you're absolutely right. You know, we have this nefesh, this serpent, a shining one, I guess, is another translation of nefesh, in the garden talking to you. But it's like, she's alone, too. And that was the other part that stood out to me was... She wasn't with Adam. She was alone talking to this thing that should have been under her feet. And she was obeying it. Mm-hmm. And right. the border, you know. Well, and, and the other thing is that she presents what was said about the tree in a light that isn't what God said. Yeah, she misquotes. She misquotes God's command. Yeah. So the question is, why did she do that? Is it because she's adding to it or was she just mistaken? Or did Adam, who was the one who heard it from God himself, did he miss his dominion over her and not teach her properly? Classic game of telephone and you tell one person one thing and then they add a little bit to it later on. Absolutely. And, you know, the border crossing, you know, going on the other side of the railroad track, so to speak, has definitely played out consistently here 
in Genesis 3. And then we get an answer, you know, God's, look, we're going to have to do a sacrifice for you guys and clothe you in the skins of the animals that you have dominion over. And it moves on from there. We have another border crossing just a couple chapters later when, you know, watchers fall from heaven, if you were to take the book of Enoch's terminology. And that sets man into another course of action. Right. Yeah. And and not only that, but in between those two things, you still have humanity doing bad things. So it's not it's not just that you have these incursions like the incursions are affecting humanity, but that doesn't take away their responsibility. So we shouldn't see in this episode in Genesis six that there's nothing that humans have any responsibility for for the flood. But it is that incursion into our realm from the unseen realm that is worsening the situation that is allowing us or or teaching mankind better ways. This is the story behind what's going on in Genesis 6. The ancient Mesopotamian story is that there was that influence from the heavens into the to our realm of teaching mankind things that people are going to now be able to murder even more effectively than Cain and Lamech did. Uh, you know, and and more sexual type things going on with uh, makeup and seduction and also things like drugs. And, you know, so all of these things are combining to create a situation where mankind's just taking it and it's, they're running with yeah, it. Absolutely. It brings us back, oddly enough, to, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost in that man is making these creations of their own hands and considering those creations perfect. And they're putting the faith yeah. in the things that they're making. And it's simply, no, these are probably not goods. It's it's not good to be able to kill other people. We have these Decalogue that comes out in the from Moses and he lists these things. Don't do that. And it's not like don't do them because you can't do them. You very well can choose to do them, but you shouldn't because they're not in will or in the line of the will of God. And they're not actually promoting flourishing. And, and that's really the key. And in all of these things, that's, that's the key. What is the flourishing of humankind and how do they get it? Are you choosing your own way of trying to get flourishing through this other method? Or are you going to trust God to provide everything and to cause the flourishing of humankind by obeying him and things like that? And yet mankind continues to relegate his purpose to other beings. We end up watching that happen when mankind starts to worship the entities of the divine council, so to speak, in Deuteronomy 32. They continue to just give dominion of our our own lives to other things. It's consistent. Today, we may give more faith in money than we do in obviously trusting in God's divinity or plan for our lives. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's this idea that we can do it ourselves and... And that's what happens with Eve in the garden. She saw that the tree was delightful to the eyes and that it was going to be delicious. And she thought, well, you know, the serpent tells me these good things as well. I'm going to to go ahead and do something about that myself. And it is that which is the human side of the, the equation. And we shouldn't, sometimes we, we, we kind of give a little bit too much credence to either one side or the other. It's either Satan is doing everything evil in the world and all of our temptations are coming from him, or 
we're going to forget about all of that supernatural business and mumbo jumbo. And let's just talk about mankind's responsibility here. When really the Bible speaks of both. And that, that is absolutely essential to understand because this is a thread that goes from the absolute beginning through the work of Jesus to the end of creation, that there is that mirroring of heaven and earth and that both of those things are involved and both of those things affect things. And that's really essential for us to understand as Christians today. It's this idea that there it's not just one right. or the other, it's both. And that's what makes these three falls of Genesis, we might say, or the three initial falls of mankind into depravity. Those, Both of those things are involved in each of those episodes. Right. In each one, there is always some partial or non-human being taking the blame for the entire process. Eve blames the serpent, obviously. And then you get the, the Great Flood. Well, it's like, you know, well, the Great Flood wouldn't happen if it wasn't for these watchers over here, you know. And then uh, the Tower right. of Babel, well, that wouldn't happen. It wasn't for Nimrod over there. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the Tower of Babel episode, that's just so fascinating. In a way, Genesis 3 seems fairly straightforward. Kind of, you know, the, the characters involved are at, at least a bit transparent. They're, they're there in the story, right? In Genesis 6, they're also transparent, but it depends on how you're going to interpret things there. You could go a couple of different ways if you really want to say that the sons of God are the sons of, of a man instead of the sons of God. But the the actual context of the time and the writing, it's it's like if, if you take out all of the supernatural elements and then you just want to say that it's only mankind evil, well, it See, we're not saying that there isn't mankind evil, because look at the situation with Cain and Lamech. That was entirely them. And so it's not necessary to say that everything is absolutely an incursion of, of from the right. spiritual realm into our realm. But if you take out that supernatural element, you're missing out a lot of what's this understanding of the Bible. And that, that's, that's kind of what we want, right? When we're reading the Bible, we understand. You want to understand it on its own terms. It's really hard to do if you're going to ignore what they're saying about things. Or, or failing to take the, the responsibility and the dominion over your own life like you're supposed to. Yeah, it's, and so we, we have to keep in mind this dualistic kind of a world that they were living in where people were doing things and spiritual entities are also yeah. doing things. And you have those things that are interacting. And I think that's what you see in Genesis 6 as well, because the daughters of men they were attractive to the sons of God. So you already have this kind of interaction of the, the physical and the, the unseen realm there. The sons of God weren't going to come into the daughters of men if they didn't find them attractive. So right. if there's all, there's like a dynamic that's yeah, going makes on you, there of both sides. I mean, of it makes things. you ask the question. I mean, it kind of do a little apologetic little, it makes you kind of ask the questions. Well, were the daughters of Seth so unattractive? Or if they were, right. if they were princes or rulers for <laughs> the daughters of the rulers who are eating the better stuff, were they unattractive? How is it that these people who were, you know, the daughters of Cain, who obviously didn't live as well as the sons of Seth or the rulers would live, why all of a sudden are they more attractive? It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense right. coming from the perspective actually of a man to be drawn to women of a station actually higher than yours is the norm, not beneath you. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so definitely. the typical... 
uh, if, if we were to talk about the psychology of it for a second, uh, women tend to be drawn to men of a class higher than them. And then, oddly enough, men will settle, will settle for a class right below, but aim for above. And so there's, there's all this, right. this, this, that dynamic that's going back and forth. And so when you read the text, okay, the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, are drawn to the daughters of men. Then you go, okay, this is beginning to make more sense. These heavenly hosts can look down and, gosh, man, these things, these women, they're beautiful, but they'll be a little bit more beautiful. We can get them to learn how to do some makeup. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, <I> mean, it's, <laughs> but it's designed to make them into, you know, all, all of the aims are designed to make them do things contrawise to the dominion that they already have. Right. You know, there's the incursion of this event. We say it's at Mount Hermon. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 32, Moses lays down something really valid and very powerful. And the Septuagint does a really good job use, using this as opposed to a Mesoretic text where it literally says the nations of the world were divided according to the number of the sons of God. What can we right. draw out of that? Yeah, well... I mean, we could actually talk about this mirroring of heaven and earth here, about the textual variants, because I think that the sons of Israel uh, textual variant that we find in the Masoretic text and in some of our translations that we have today in English, I feel like that's probably less of a difference between the sons of Israel and the sons of God than we tend to think of it as, because there is that mirroring of heaven and earth. And so when, during the second temple period, when, uh, when probably the, the variant of the sons of Israel came about, they were actually thinking in terms of, you know, their Sanhedrin, right? right? And their Sanhedrin was made up of 70 or 72 yeah. men. And that parallels actually the divine council of El in the, in the ancient Near Eastern yeah. perspective, like the context of the ancient Near East, they had 70 or 72 of gods that were under L. And so the idea there is that there is a parallel there. So the sons of Israel would have been the later sons of God, if that makes sense. Like they that they were supposed to be that that reflection of the divine council on earth. Now we've lost a lot of that kind of thinking that there really was that that intimate connection or at least there was supposed to be course, that didn't actually happen in history. We see what happens with the Sanhedrin and the rulers yeah. of Israel. But the idea was that their decisions and their way of life and, and what they did would parallel God's divine counsel. And that was supposed to be a good thing. They, they were supposed to be doing God's will on earth, just as the divine counsel would be doing God's will in heaven. And so actually, I think that when we see this textual variant and we say, oh, we have to choose one or the other. Well, if we're thinking in, in terms of the way they thought at the time, it's actually both. They suddenly vested it from a supernatural context. No, the supernatural context was still there very deeply. They just put it into their context because they didn't care about, you know, the divine council of El and the divine council of the even the Old Testament a little bit less than what they were thinking of the time of setting themselves up as this also divine counsel, but we're here on earth. And so it's, yes, it's just, it's so essential to get into the mindset 
And so the the sons of Israel, it, it makes sense that this would be a later translation because this is a later kind of thinking that they're really digging into the the Sanhedrin context yeah. here. But originally, they, they didn't have the Sanhedrin in the way that they did in the Second Temple. So the sons of God, that is the older, like the older translation, the older textual variant. And as you said, it, it's brought out in the Septuagint quite well in Qumran and, and things like that. Uh, and and when you look at this text in Deuteronomy 32.8, there's really only one division that it could be talking about, and that would be the division in Genesis 11 with the right. Tower of Babel. And so when you we, we talk about the three falls in Genesis, we loop in Genesis 11, but we don't see those sons of God that are in Deuteronomy 32 in Genesis 11. But they're presumed to be there because the Tower of Babel incident is one where they are building not just a tower to climb up to heaven as we tend to think of it, but that's the wrong way of thinking about it. They weren't trying to reach heaven. They were bringing heaven down to them. They wanted the gods or God or powerful deities to help us here. They want that power contained in their temple. That's what they were doing along with making a name for themselves because that goes hand in hand. If you want to make a name for yourself, you got to have some spiritual right. help, right? You're not going to do it on your own, at least in their context. Today, we've lost that. And we're like, yeah, of course we can do it on our own. Well, no, you can't, but you go with that and see how it works. <laughs> so we don't see the sons of God in Genesis 11, but Deuteronomy 32 makes it quite clear that this is the context that it's speaking about. Right. And something that might help some listeners is when we look at structures archaeologically, because we may not very well have the Tower of Babel that was built. I mean, it may be there covered in the sands of time, but ultimately we, we might not. But we do have similar structures that were designed around the world. And that brings me to like Mesoamerica and specifically their ziggurats. And they were built and the Inca and all of the archaeological evidence supports that the top structure of the ziggurat was the sacred temple space where their god, whatever it might be, Quetzalcoatl or whatnot, could dwell within the upper temple, therefore being at the top of the mountain because they're symbolizing mountains. Be at the mountain and you can go and visit and hang out with your god. And influence him too. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> that was the real thing. You wanted him there in order to give him offerings in order, and that's what a sacrifice is. It's not, well, okay, for some, for many pagan cultures, it is about the blood and yeah. the death because the gods were bloodthirsty. But it's also about the, here's some food. You want it? It's really good. We got the, we got our best barbecue here. Let's share it with God and, and then he'll bless us. That's the whole idea between, uh, behind pagan yeah. rituals and sacrifice is we want to corral the gods and get them to give us something because we need help. We need we need our crops to grow. We need our babies to be born and to flourish. We need all of these things. We need good health and things. We're going to ask the deities to bless us by bribing them. And that's what pagan offerings and pagan sacrifice was all about. They were trying to influence things because they didn't know what else to do. They had to do yeah. something. Over time, you know, you develop the animism and the idea that you're influencing the ways of nature. Absolutely. You can go into that. You know, it's like David, you know, we're talking about some pre-Masonic figure here. You got David and he's offered 
an animal for sacrifice and he insists on paying for it. But the person won't let him pay for it. He says, no, listen to me. I will not offer anything to God that didn't cost me something. And that's the big difference between right sacrifice versus the manipulative offerings that were being done by the pagan communities of their era. Right. Yeah, there's a very much a distinction there. And it's an important one. It's, it's not artificial. It's not superficial. There's a distinction between the way a pagan sacrifice would quote unquote work and what was going on in the Bible. And that's why we have in the prophets all of the, those words about how God didn't want sacrifice. Yeah. Well, he didn't literally not ask for sacrifice because he clearly <laughs> did back in right. the Torah. But what he's saying is that he's not asking for this magical type of ritual. That's not the point. You guys have missed the boat entirely here. And that's what and, and they missed the boat because that's what the pagans were doing. That's what they're that's what the people around them were doing. And they were like they were in such a culture where everybody could worship any god that so often the Israelites were just hedging their bets just like yeah. everyone else. They're like, well, yeah, we believe in Yahweh, sure. But guess what? We could also do all these other things and it's fine. Doesn't matter. And Yahweh says, no, it really does matter, you guys. And and there's the, that very major distinctive difference. Yahweh is saying, you can't, you can't bribe me. You can, however, be in relationship right. with me if you want that. Because that leads us to Abraham, right? I mean, he takes Isaac up the mountain and, you know, he's commanded by God Most High to offer his only son. I mean, it's, it's the first time the word love is used in the Bible. It should hit people really hard when it's like, take your son, your only son whom you love and sacrifice him to right. me. And Abraham's like, great, you're just another dude of a million gods because Baal does this. They all, Moloch does, they all do this. They all want child sacrifice. Okay, fine. You know what? I'm going to go and yeah. do it. Abraham was expecting that. And so he's me. like, okay, I'll trust you. I'll do it. And he goes up and it's like, he stops him. Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you love me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as I'm thinking about, as we're talking about all of this stuff in the Old Testament, it's just rife with it. It's all over the place. And suddenly, look how far we are from that Genesis 3 idea of this is the only fall here. This is the only thing right, that matters. This is the only reason Jesus comes no, back. Right. No. It is all over the Old Testament that it is so much broader than that. And, you know, sometimes we still want to stuff it all back into that one single bag and say, oh, well, they're still all under Satan. Well, I mean... There's a sense in which you can say that by the time of the New Testament, they have this understanding that he has gotten that status, but it's still not really clear. And for sure, like throughout the entire Old Testament, it is Baal and it is Molech and it is just, you know, all of these other gods that are so much more in the minds of the Israelite and in the minds of God interacting with right. the people. And if that's the case, then we probably ought to like understand how that got to be, who those gods are, what relationship they have to God himself, because that matters a little bit, especially when you have so much of the academic world talking about things like monotheism, polytheism, henotheism, monolatry. None of those terms, not a single one of those terms, describe what we see in the Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, we do not have an absolute monotheism being drawn out 
in the Old Testament at all. And that's kind of the scary part when we talk about the idea that there are these Ben Elohim out there that were doing these horrible things, making basically usurping the authority of God, basically wanting people to worship them because we know that's one of the MOs of those beings because we wouldn't have the temptation of Jesus when he comes to be tempted by, hey, worship me. It's like, hold on a second. This is out of nowhere, dude. But no, it's not because people were worshiping other gods, the gods that were given dominion over them because man wouldn't step up and wouldn't take dominion over what God had given them from the beginning. So here comes Jesus. He's he's born according, you know, today's, you know, the 8th of January. But yesterday was the epiphany, right? It's the, the feast to when the uh, the wise men come and see Jesus, you know, and Herod's like, OK, fine, I'm going to kill all these. Well, if Jesus came to die for our sins, that was his main goal to right the fall of Eden. Mm. Then why wasn't he killed at two years of age when Herod has all the children killed? Just be done with it then. To go back to Milton Paradise Lost, you know, the whole point of his poem was to show that man would take things and create it and make it perfect. And if anybody's read uh, Alexander's Social Litson's Gulag Archipelago, you'll see right off the bat that totalitarian governments were created to be a perfect form of government. But then we see exactly what happened at the fall of basically, you know, the USSR over its period of time and the horrible things that occurred under a totalitarian government, though some would have called it perfect. Yep. Well, I mean, that is like exactly what we have happening over and over in the Bible. And it's that pattern of we're just going to make things right. We don't really need you, God. We're just going to do it ourselves. We're going to make it perfect because you're not doing a very good job of it. Yeah, we don't like the way that you're going about it, God. So we're just going to figure it out on our own. And what's fascinating about that is that when you think of the idea that, you know, we just need to confess our sins and then we'll go to heaven when we die. This escapism, this idea that the whole point is to get to heaven wherever that is. And the Bible doesn't actually speak in those kinds of terms generally. Well, what's the what's the foil to that? But the foil isn't an easy escapism. The foil is boots on the ground. We're actually going to make this thing work. We're actually going to fulfill the purposes of creation here. Like that is just, it's mind blowing, isn't it? Because we see what's going on in our world and we see all of the imperfection. We see the problems and we think, well, you know, if this guy would be punished and if we could just set this up over here and create these laws, then it would be great. No, you're doing the same thing. (laughs) You're still doing it, guys. Like, you've got to go into what God is doing and that is God interacting and coming into the world. Yeah. And being with us and us worshiping him and becoming his disciples, following that. That's the process that is going to be perfection, that is going to perfect creation. We don't like that because it takes time. It's slow. It takes our (laughs) effort. You know, it's... You mean it's work? Oh, why can't it just happen in an instant? Yeah, it's work. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Love God and love neighbor. Wonderful interview. Carrie, let's talk about some of the things where people can find you, anything that you have in the works. If you've got, you know, hopefully books coming out. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm working on is a, a study that's going to be from Genesis... 1 to 11. You can either use it personally, just yourself, or you can take the information and use it to structure a class. Uh, That's one thing I'm working on currently, trying to get that out. 
Um, but generally speaking, I spend most of my time working on my podcast, Genesis Marks the Spot. You can you can find it in all of the places. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, which apparently is going away, and that's really weird to me this year. But uh, you can find it on all those places. You can find it on my website at genesismarksthespot.com. And I talk about all of this kind of stuff all the time there. Uh, if if you're interested, you can just go to my website and you can actually do searches there. The search function works pretty darn well because I have transcripts of all my episodes and it'll pull up episode titles and things. Uh, and I, it, my episodes are also organized according to different types and categories nice. as well. So lots of different ways you can delve into the content. I'll make sure there. all of that's in the show notes. Do you have any concluding thoughts that you would like to share? Uh, just that I'm super excited that more of this information is coming out for people today. Uh, it's been the case that most academics and people who are training to be pastors, they, they're often very much, uh, they, they will learn about this stuff, whether or not they take it seriously, I don't know. But it, a lot of the times it's just, it's locked away into this vault and then they go into the church and they go, well, people don't, they're not going to understand this. So we're not going to teach it this way. And I would beg to differ. I, I have a much higher view of what the church can handle. I think we can learn this stuff. And I think that we are so much better for it when we do. So kudos to you and your podcast for getting the word of biblical studies out and just understanding context and understanding things on a deeper level. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light in the darkness.